You know, one of the most common images of God in Scripture is that of a shepherd. David, when he wrote the most famous psalm ever written, Psalm 23, began it with, The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus, in John chapter 10, was talking about himself when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Now, true confession, I've never been a shepherd. As far as I know, I've never even touched a sheep. But I would imagine that one of the priorities, the, the, one of the things that a shepherd's got to be most cognizant of is the protection of his flock. And we read stories in the Bible about David when he was a young shepherd boy fending off lions and bears in the protection of his sheep. And I don't know that it was quite that dramatic for every biblical shepherd, but they did have a way of protecting their sheep. Now, during the day, during biblical times, the, the flock of sheep would just wander around the countryside. They would intermingle with, with other sheep, with other flocks of sheep. And they would go wherever they could find water or wherever they could find food. But in the evening, <coughs> the shepherd would call his sheep. In fact, it says the, shepherd would know, the sheep would know their shepherd's name. And he would put them in a pen that he'd built for their protection. Now, generally, it was a rock pen that was high enough to provide protection from predators. It was built out of rocks and stones. And, and in that pen, they would have everything they needed for protection. They would have water. They would have food. They could sleep in safety, and, and they would be safe inside the wall that the shepherd built for them. Now, in a similar way, God has built a wall or a fence for us. And if we stay inside this wall, we'll have everything we need for life, or as Jesus called it, the abundant life, if we stay inside the wall. Now, we can choose to wander outside the wall, but safety is not guaranteed out there. We may be okay for a while, but there may be cliffs out there that we can fall off of. It may be desert out there. We may have trouble finding food or water. And, of course, there may be predators out there. Or we can choose to stay within the wall that God's built, and there he will grant life. So what is this wall in the life of a Christ follower? Well, as you might imagine, it's the Word of God. And more specifically this morning... It's the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that, especially if you haven't been here over the last month or so when we've talked about the Ten Commandments, I know that when people hear the phrase Ten Commandments, they kind of figuratively and perhaps even literally roll their eyes. And they say, well, you know, aren't those Ten Commandments kind of like black and white TV? I mean, it was okay for its time, but really it's kind of out of date now. No, the truth is that, that God didn't give us the Ten Commandments to steal life from us. He gave us the Ten Commandments to ensure life, just like that fence would ensure life, that rock wall would ensure the life of the sheep. Now, today we're going to be looking at the Fifth Commandment, which is really different than all the other Ten Commandments. This is the first commandment that deals with a non-spiritual issue. We're going to look at the first four, uh, first four commandments. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. You remember us talking about that. The second one is, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. The third one is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the fourth one is, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now, the fifth commandment is a transition from those four, which deal with our vertical relationship with God, to the remainder of the Ten Commandments, which talk about our horizontal relationship with each other. And this fifth commandment is actually the first one 
that comes with a promise. Let's look at it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I think this applies to anybody that had parents, anybody that is a parent, anybody that plans on being a parent. So that should be just about everybody in the room. If it's not, I'm a little bit concerned, I think. But, you know, when we see these words, we understand what they mean. But sometimes we have trouble making the application. What, what is honor? What does honor look like? The definition of honor is to hold with dignity and high respect. Now, isn't it interesting that there's nothing in the Ten Commandments about respecting your elders? There's nothing in the Ten Commandments about honoring the king or honoring the president or honoring and respecting your boss. But we are told to honor our father and our mother. Why is that? It's because of this principle. No one can be emotionally healthy or mature until they relate properly to authority. No one can be emotionally healthy or mature until they relate properly to authority. And children learn that at home. Much of the way children feel about God is based upon how they feel about their parents, which ought to be pretty sobering to most of us. This means as parents, we have the responsibility of shaping our child's view of God. And how we as parents reflect God's authority in our life will have a dramatic impact on how our children view God's authority. Now, I'll say up front, there's one thing I know about children. You can do all the right things. You can go to all the seminars. You can go to read all the books. You can do everything right, and there's still no guarantee how your children are going to turn out. Why is that? Because God gave them a free will. Amen? Amen. It doesn't take us very long to figure that one out. You know, God had the first children in the Garden of Eden, and they messed up. So that ought to be an encouragement to the rest of us. But there are some principles that everybody ought to know and everybody ought to abide by. So the question is, why is this commandment in one of the Ten Commandments? Why did God think it was so important to honor your parents that he would put that in the Ten Commandments? If you only had to choose ten, would this be one of the ten that you would choose? Why did honor, God say to honor your parents, but he didn't say honor all these other forms of legitimate authority? A couple of principles. One is because parental honor lays the foundation for our attitude toward all authority figures. Parental honor lays the foundation for our attitude toward all authority figures. If we don't get this one right, we'll have no foundation for relating to all the authority figures in our lives. If, if, we, don't, if we mess this one up, then we're going to struggle when our relationships with bosses, with teachers, with police officers, and anybody else that's put in authority over us. Second principle is honoring our parents and honoring God are powerfully linked. If we don't learn to do the first one, to honor our parents, then we're really going to have trouble doing the second one, which is honoring God. When children learn to respect and honor their parents, they learn to respect and honor God. If you want to teach your children to obey and honor God, who they can't even see, 
They need to learn to obey and honor you who they can see. Laura Schlesinger said it like this, and a quote attributed to her, it said, she said, parents are teachers of faith and morality. What God is to the world, parents are to their children. Unfortunately, some parents become so focused on the element of friendship or their own convenience, comfort, self-fulfillment, happiness, or love life, that they forget their job is to help mold moral character so that their children have the strength to do what is right in a world that sometimes encourages them to do otherwise. Now, this is not a new problem. There was a philosopher, a very astute philosopher, that one time wrote, Our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners. They have contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders. They love to chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They babble before company. They gobble up their food, and they terrorize the teachers. Now, how old do you think that quote is? Socrates, 2,500 years ago, said that. So we're not addressing an entirely new problem. But the challenge is that we live in a society that admires disobedience and rebellion. You don't have to look very far before you admit that, you know, in, in America, we really don't like authority figures. We like our independence, and we don't like anybody telling us what to do. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, just take a note of how most authority figures are portrayed on TV. When you see TV shows, most parents or people in authority are seen as clueless morons that are too stupid to be honored. Think of shows like The Simpsons, Family Guy, American Dad. I would go so far as to say any animated show on Fox probably falls in this category. They don't make anybody want to respect their parents. And so God's command flies in sharp contrast to that, but it's really very simple. It says, honor your father and your mother. So how can we honor our parents? I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, and this isn't meant to be a comprehensive list, but I'm going to start with probably the least popular principle, and that is obey your parents. It's not just an Old Testament command. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 reiterated this command. He said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Now, obedience looks a lot different when you're grown than when you're young. But honor goes way beyond obedience. You may have heard the story about this, the small family that was traveling in their car together. The mom and the dad were in the front seat, and the little boy was in the back. He took off his seatbelt, and he was jumping up and down and playing on the back seat. And his mom told him, he said, son, you need to sit down and put your seatbelt on. He just ignored her and kept on playing. And pretty soon the, the father turned around, and he said, son, sit down and put your seatbelt on. The little boy just ignored him. He kept on. And the father turned around and said it a second time. He turned around and said it a third time. And finally, the little boy said, with his hands on his hips, says, I will not sit down. To which the father gave one of those speeches that you may have heard if you're my age. If you don't sit down, I'm going to pull this car over right now. And I'll let, if you've heard that speech, you know how that sentence ends. Well, the little boy sat down and decided it was wise to put on his seatbelt. He just sat there in silence for a while. And then finally he folded his arms and he said, Well, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. 
Now, there's obedience there, but there is no respect or honor. And aren't we like that? The application here is that God put us as parents in the visible place of authority over our children. And if we fail to keep them inside this wall that God set up for us, they're going to experience all kinds of unnecessary pain. The second way that we can honor our parents is to set an example for our children by honoring our own parents. You know, don't you, that the way you treat and talk about and honor your parents will have a dramatic impact and influence on how your, your children honor you. There's a Grimm's fairy tale that has a story that some of you may know. It goes like this. There was an old man one time that lived with his son and his son's wife and their four-year-old son. And the old man was getting on up in age, and he was getting rather feeble, and his hands would shake. And when he was, when he was trying to eat out of the bowl, the, the silverware would clatter against the bowl. And occasionally when he'd bring it up to his mouth, some of the food would drop out of the spoon and fall on the table, which just infuriated the, the mom, the wife. And so she, one day she said, she told her husband, says, you need to do something about that. And so the husband said, decided, well, okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll put a stool in the corner for, for the old man and we'll let him eat there. And that way his food won't fall on the table. Well, the old man during mealtime would sit on the stool in silence and eat his food, looking at the table and wishing that he was with the rest of his family. And there came a time one day when he, dropped the bowl accidentally, and it shattered on the floor. And both of the parents stood up and said, and that, and that, that was just the final straw. They said, if you're going to act like a pig, then we're going to treat you like a pig. And so they went out, the, man, the, the husband went out, and he built a wooden trough for his dad to eat out of while he was sitting in the corner during mealtime. A few days later, the dad's outside, and he sees his four-year-old playing with some pieces of wood. And he says, what are, you, what, what are you doing? And the little boy said, well, I'm building a trough for you and mom to eat out of when I get big. It wasn't too long before the old man was back at the table. The moral of the story is the honor that you give is the honor that you will receive. John Locke said it like this. Parents wonder why the streams are bitter when they themselves poisoned the fountain." third way that we can honor our parents is by forgiving their failings. Listen, no parents are perfect. All of us were learning on the job. And some of us may not have had the best parents. Or we may not be the best parents. Or maybe you're no longer under your parents' authority. But even, even so, you never outgrow God's command to honor them. There is no statute of limitations. There is no time factor on the commandment to honor your parents. We never outgrow God's command to honor our parents. Now, there's actually two parts to this commandment. One is about children honoring their parents. The other is about parents being honorable. So how is it that we can gain our children's honor? I'll give you two or three areas. One is by loving them, and more specifically, by spending time with them. Saw an article in the Wall Street Journal, and you've seen articles like this. It says that the average American parent spends less than 15 minutes a week in meaningful conversation with their children. And I don't mean to make anybody feel badly, 
But please don't fall for the lie about quality time versus quantity time. We show our children how valuable they are to us by the amount of time we spend with them. There's a biographer named James Boswell told a story about a day when he was a young boy and his dad took him fishing. And he was, they were together the whole day. And, and Boswell remembered how the lessons that his dad taught him, the things they talked about, the wisdom that his dad passed along. And Boswell said later, that day profoundly impacted, profoundly changed the rest of his life. Several years later, somebody found the journals for, for the father and thought it would be interesting. He said, let's go back and look and see what his father wrote for that day that Boswell was said, said was so impactful on his life. And they, found, they looked up that day, and there was one sentence. There was only one sentence in his father's diary for that day. And it said this, Went fishing today with my son, a wasted day. I would submit to you that there's no such thing as wasted time with your children. My wife, Denise, will tell you that I still play John Madden football and PlayStation with my boys, and they're almost 30 years old. Why do we do that? Because that's how we spend time together. Another way that we can love our children is by, by touch. And the Bible gives us a beautiful example of this. In Luke chapter 15, there's the story about a, a young man that demands his inheritance from his father. And he goes off, he gets his part of the inheritance, and he goes off, and it doesn't take very long before he has blown the entire thing. And he's eating with the pigs. And he comes to the realization, he says, you know, the servants in my father's house live better than this. I'm going to go back home. And you would think that a father in that circumstance that had taken and blown half of, half of his wealth, you'd think that a father would hold it against his son. But Scripture gives us a beautiful story of how a father should love his children. Because it says in Luke chapter 15, he, in verse 20, he was looking a long ways off. He was looking for his son and he saw him coming. And in Luke 15, chapter 20, it says, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Dads, your children long for your affection and your affirmation. They will love you for it. And you might be one of these people who say, Well, you know, that's not how I was raised. Or I'm just not real comfortable with that. Well, let me ask you, how do you want your kids to raise their children? Because they're probably going to emulate the example that you set for them. Dads, you, parents, let, let's look at it this way. Let your children see you hugging one another. It gives them a great sense of security. Now imagine if, you, if your job now and you were in a very small company that had two co-owners, very small. And you're sitting there, and every time you see the owners of the company together, they're either arguing or bickering or fighting, or maybe sometimes there's just a, this stony silence. Imagine what that would do for your sense of security about this job. It wouldn't take very long, I don't think, before you'd say, you know, I think I really need to find another place to work. Unfortunately, children don't have that option. But I've heard it said that the most important thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Another way that you can love your children 
is by praying for them. Now, I know if you're like me, you pray for your children when they're sick. You pray for them when they have tests. You pray for them in a particularly stressful time of their life. But let me ask you this. How much time do you spend praying for their relationship with God? How much time do you spend praying for the development of godly character in your children? How much time do you spend praying for their future spouse? Whether your children are 20 years old or 15 or 10 or 5, have you ever thought about praying for your little one's future spouse? Because one of the best ways to love your children is by praying for them. The second area that we can, the way that we can gain our children's honor is by nurturing them. Specifically, by encouraging them. Now, children need encouragement like a plant needs water. Dose after dose, day after day, over and over again. Let your children know through your encouragement that you believe in them. I read a a saying on Facebook that said, choose your words wisely. It's easier to build up a child than it is to repair an adult. When you're encouraging them, encourage the development of character, which is permanent, more than the development of physical traits or achievements or abilities. You know the difference, don't you? I mean, a physical trait is you are so cute, you're so beautiful, you're so good-looking. Achievements say you're the fastest, you're the strongest, you may be the best one on the team. You sing marvelously. And it's okay to praise those things. But remember that if we praise their attributes and their achievements to the exclusion of building up their character, what's going to happen? As time inevitably erodes those abilities, as time erodes those physical traits, there's going to come a time and they're going to say, is my value wrapped up in my physical, the way I look physically and what I've achieved? And if we have not developed a character in our children to have confidence in themselves, they're going to say, maybe that's all I was. Maybe that's where my value is. So our responsibility is to grow our children's character more than anything else. Say, I'm proud of you for doing the right thing. I'm proud of you for making the right choice. Andy Stanley says it like this. People will remember you for who you are, not what you do. Another way that we can nurture our children is by by laughing with them. You want to be an honorable parent? Lighten up. Your family knows you're not perfect. You need to learn to laugh at yourself. Now, I'm going to tell you, to illustrate this, I'm going to tell you a personal story. And I'll say up front that this story has no real good moral at the end of it. And it's not one of my prouder moments. And if you're a cat lover, I apologize ahead of time. Although I will say that no cats are harmed in the telling of this story. So here we go. About 13 or 14 years ago, which, so yes, I was old enough to know better. 13 or 14 years ago, I had a big dog, Australian Shepherd, named Ben. We hadn't had him very long. And as I said, I grew up in a family where there wasn't a lot of love for cats. And I look out the window one day, and I see a cat in our backyard. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity to teach Ben how we feel about cats. So I grabbed Ben by the collar. My boys just happened to be standing there. So I called Matt and Kyle. And I said, come on, son, let's, let's, go, let's go chase this cat off. And so we go out the side door, and we make our way around the side of the house. And we come to the corner where the cat is right around the corner. We come to the corner, and the cat does what a cat always does. He freezes, right? 
dog does what the dog always does, which is, cat? I don't see a cat. Where are your cats? I don't see any cats. So I decided that I need to encourage Ben. And so I said, sick him, Ben. Sick him. Well, when I said that, the cat took off, and Ben took off after the cat. Now, what I thought was going to happen is that the cat would run 10 feet to the chain-link fence, scramble up it, and be gone, and that would be the end of the story. But, of course, he didn't do that. Why? Because of the cat. And so I said, sick him, Ben, sick him. And so Ben takes off after the cat. The cat, instead of going toward the fence, does a U-turn and comes right back past me and Matt and Kyle. And so I'm sitting there going, go, Ben, go, go, Ben, go, go, Ben. And out of the corner of my eye, I look and see where the cat's going. Out of the corner of my eye, I see my neighbor leaning over the back fence like this with this ashen look on her face. And so I start in mid-sentence, I go, go, Ben, go, no, Ben, no, Ben, no. And so the cat is running for the fence. Ben is running after the cat, and now I'm running after Ben. Well, fortunately for all of us, the cat made it to the fence first. And the cat scrambles up the fence. His owner grabs him and holds him. She's stroking him. And she says, you know, he's been declawed. He couldn't hurt anybody. To which I said, well, it's a good thing I was here then. <laughs> now, that's the end of the story. Like I said, there's no great moral to this story. But why do I tell this story? First off, primarily because it keeps me humble. <laughs> it reminds me that I'm not perfect, that I make mistakes. You know, all my children had to do when I would come to them and I'd say, what were you thinking? When you did that, what were you thinking was going to happen? All they'd have to do is look at me in the eye and say, go, Ben, go. And, and I got nothing. I, ha- I have no response to that, right? There were times when I make mistakes and I have to ask my children for forgiveness, for not being a good example as a parent. And that was modeled for me by my father when he was, the last time was probably when he was 72, 73 years old. He wrote me a letter and he said, I want to ask for your forgiveness for something that he said in a silly game of dominoes. But that's where I learned that. The third area that we can gain our children's honor is by directing them. And more specifically, by limiting them, by setting up healthy limits. Now, our culture sees rule setting as a, as a bad thing. But it really may be the most valuable thing that we as parents can do. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I'm not going to tell the story, but you can read it for yourself. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, there's a story about the priest of Israel named Eli. And Eli was an honorable man. His boys, not so much. And Scripture says that God brought judgment on Eli and his family precisely because he, quote, failed to restrain his sons. Imagine driving on a road where there were no speed limit signs. And you'd say, well, that would be awesome. Well, imagine that you were driving down this road with no speed limit signs and the police were pulling people over all the time for speeding. How would you feel then? Imagine, if you will, a basketball game where nobody knows where the out-of-bounds lines are. The referees know, but the players don't know. And the the, the referees are always calling the players out of bounds. What's going to happen? It's going to make for a really long game and a lot of really frustrated basketball players. Well, that same principle applies to parenting. 
Establish reasonable expectations and boundaries in advance. See, your children need to know what is and what is not acceptable behavior before they're held accountable for it. This helps eliminate that sense of injustice that children feel when they're punished for something when they messed up. Another way that we can direct our children is by leading them spiritually. Intentionally discipling them. You've got to lead your children to develop godly character. You've got to show your children what a man or a woman of character looks like. Solomon, who said, the Bible says, is the wisest man that ever lived, said it like this. Train, a child, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't turn from it. Now, nearly all parents of children under the age of 13 agree that parents have the primary responsibility for teaching their children values and spiritual principles. But tragically, very, the majority of parents do not spend any time in a week discussing spiritual things with their children. How do you expect your children to learn what it means to be a Christ follower? I mean, it's great to teach your children how to play sports, how to throw a ball, how to tie their shoes, how to change a tire. They need to know those things. But more importantly than that, as parents, we're responsible for teaching our children who God is and how they should relate to Him. We're responsible for teaching our parents who God is and how they should relate to Him. I found a poem that I think should be both a warning and an encouragement to us as parents. And it reads like this. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If he lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If he lives with ridicule, he sure learns to be shy. And if he lives with shame, he learns to feel guilty. But if a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. With encouragement, he learns to have confidence. If he lives with praise, he learns appreciation. If he lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith. And if he lives with approval, he learns to like himself. If a child lives with acceptance, he learns to find love in the world. America has an entire subculture of children that are fatherless. The most recent statistics I could find indicate that more than 40% of all children born in the USA are born into single-parent homes. Now, that's not to say that single-parent homes are inherently bad, but I think we would all agree that having two committed parents is a lot easier than having just one. I heard a statistic just a while ago that said in the last 25 years, there's been 25 mass shootings in the United States. 29 all of them by boys, all but one had no father figure in the home. 28 out of 29 of those boys had no father figure in their home. And then we have orphans and foster children. And if you've been at Grace Point Church for very long, hopefully you know that we want to be serious about addressing the needs of orphans and foster children in northwest Arkansas. And to that extent, we've established a ministry called Mosaic, and the reason we've named it that is because it's making beauty from the broken pieces of people's lives. And you should have received a, a sheet when you came in. If not, you can get one on the way out that talks about all the different elements of this ministry, opportunities to support, opportunities to mentor, opportunities for education. And we have an initiative to connect body life groups with 
families that are taking in foster children, which if you don't know, that's a very labor-intensive, love-intensive environment, a lot of, lot of demands. And so we want to connect our body life groups with those families that are actually taking in foster children. And one of the body life groups, when they connected to one of their families, they wrote them an email and got this reply. It said, thank you so much for reaching out to support us. Every time I think of what to say, I've been brought to tears. It feels like we won the lottery. When was the last time somebody said that your involvement in their life made them feel like they won the lottery? So my encouragement is you, to you is to get involved. Make a difference in the life of a child who may have little or no experience with an honorable parent. Now, I realize in a group this size, there are some here today that said I'm never, that would say I, I'm never going to be able to honor my parents. Not after what he or she did to me, not after the way they treated me. And unfortunately, that's a fact of life. That's a reality. There are millions of children that are conceived without love, that are abused, that are damaged psychologically, that are ignored. Maybe you grew up in the home of a workaholic or an alcoholic. Maybe it was an abusive situation or a neglectful situation. Maybe your parents were cold or distant or seemingly just didn't care. And you want to cry out and you want to say, how can I treat somebody with honor when they were so unhonorable? According to the Bible, honoring your parents, whether they're worthy of it or not, is the most healthy, mature, or spiritually obedient thing that you can do. Even when there is not love in a relationship, there is room for honor. Now, is God asking you to forget everything that happened? Or is he asking you to pretend it never happened? No, he knows how sorry your parents might have been. But I believe God is asking us to take a step toward honoring our parents by forgiving them. And it's a very difficult step, choosing to forgive. Because, see, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. If it were a feeling, we would never forgive because I don't feel like it. But forgiveness is a choice. We have to choose to not be bitter. I have to choose to not be angry. I have to give up my right to resentment, give up my right to think of them with contempt every time I see them, give up that right to bitterness. As Christ followers, we're commanded to forgive anybody that's wronged us just as God forgave us. It's been said that you're never more like Jesus than when you choose to forgive. And so, as you choose to forgive over and over again, you'll experience an attitude change in your heart, and then you'll be honoring your parents. I'm going to ask you to Bow your heads and bow your hearts with me for a moment. Here's what I know. God is a God of relationships. And God is a God of reconciliation. I believe there are some here that God may be calling to reconcile, to attempt to reconcile a relationship. And I encourage you to do that, whether you're a student or whether you're an adult, God may be saying you need to fix that relationship. You need to attempt to fix that relationship 
with your parents. You may be a parent. And God's laid on your heart and said, you, you need to fix that relationship. You need to attempt to reconcile that relationship with your child. There may be somebody here that's not that kind of relationship, but it's another kind of relationship. It's a friend or somebody that used to be a friend. And God's calling you to fix that relationship. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you have a relationship in your, that God's put a relationship on your heart that you need to reconcile. All I'm going to do is pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. All I'm going to do is pray for you because I'm convinced that the biggest thing keeping us from God is the broken relationships in our lives. How do I know that? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, it says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled then, to them and then come and offer your gift. What he's saying is you can't worship God properly with broken relationship in your life. So let me ask, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. If you know that there's a relationship in your life, it could be your parents, it could be your children, it could be anybody else, but you know, you know in your heart if there's a broken relationship in your life that needs mending. I'm not saying it'll be easy, but if God's calling you to reconcile that relationship, relationship, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Nobody looking around. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Keep them up. Listen. We know. We know, don't we? We know there's a relationship that's broken. I'm going to pray for you in just a second. You can put your hands down. There may be others here that said, you know, I, I really can't even, it's hard for me to imagine a loving parent, let alone a loving God. And this God that you talk about, I don't even have a relationship with him. If you were honest with yourself, you'd say, I really need to reconcile a relationship with God. Maybe you've strayed from God and it's time to come back. Or maybe you'd say, I, I, I just need to know this God that you're talking about. A God with a love that never gives up, that never runs out, that never fails. Pray for me. If you'll raise your hand, I'll pray for you as well. You say, I need to know this God. I need, my relationship with God is not as strong as it used to be. Thank you. Let me pray for us. Father God forever you are faithful father you are the father to the fatherless you uphold the one who feels forsaken you defend the poor and the forgotten your love reaches to the heavens your faithfulness stretches to the skies father your righteousness is like the mighty mountains god i lift up these people to you today they were honest enough with themselves to say there's a relationship i know that i need to reconcile I know that I need to know this God that you talk about. I've never experienced love like that. Father, I pray that you'll give them the boldness to carry through with what you've called them to do. I pray that they will be obedient to do what you're calling them to do. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, we're going to stand and sing. If you want somebody to pray with you, 
you, whether you raised your hand or not, if you want somebody to pray with you, we've got Caleb and Wade and Eric and I standing in the corners. We would love to pray with you and ask God to be with you during this time of reconciliation.